inspiring and to, whiteness can be very expansive around the borders and can accommodate a lot of contradiction. That's a long way of saying I don't want my daughter to not just not look black and escape the wound, I also want her to never aspire or transition into whiteness either. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies and strategies that can veto for a time populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. Just a couple of days ago, More in Common, a great organization founded in the wake of the murder of the British MP Joe Cox in the run-up to the Brexit referendum, has published a really interesting study that basically tries to understand different kind of tribes within the United States, tries to look at what exactly the nature of our partisan polarization is. And there's two big lessons that come out of that for me. The first is that there is this debate about whether we should mobilize the base in the midterms and in 2020, or whether we should look for swing voters. And what their kind of categories make quite clear is that the answer is yes and, and that the nature of the base is a little different from what people think. So on their characterization, there's a kind of tribe of progressive activists, there's a kind of tribe of traditional liberals, and then there are disengaged liberals. These are predominantly people of color. They are often somewhat less educated. They tend to hew liberal in their views, but they also are quite skeptical that politics can do something for them. And then there's a fourth group, which are the traditional moderates, actual sort of centrists who lie somewhere between liberals and conservatives on most things. Now, the progressive activists are actually already voting in high numbers and they're already quite engaged in politics. So when you're talking about mobilizing, you're actually talking about mobilizing those disengaged liberals. And they are not ideologically extreme. What you need is to show that you're able to do something for the concerns. And that obviously includes standing up for members of minorities who are under threat today. But you're not going to win them over by rushing to the ideological extremes. And then the next group that is capable of being won over are in fact the moderates in the middle. And so a winning coalition is one that excites those liberals who usually don't turn out to vote, who are not necessarily very ideologically radical, but who certainly want to have a feeling of optimism that you can actually improve their lives while retaining enough of these swing voters, enough of these people in the actual middle to make the difference. Well, today I'm really looking forward to sharing with you deep, far-ranging, searching conversation I had with Thomas Chatterton Williams, a wonderful African-American writer who is currently living in Paris. And we talked about just about everything from identity to race to populism when we recorded this during my visit to Paris a few weeks ago. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Thomas. Thanks for having me. So listen, you're a black writer, grew up in the United States, living in Paris now. I have a couple of questions about that, which I find interesting. I mean, one is obviously the sort of long tradition of African-American writers coming to Paris as, in a certain way, a place of escape, a place to sort of reflect on the United States from afar. And in some of your recent work, you've been sort of very much in that tradition. But then, you know, it also makes me ask questions about why it is that Paris has this kind of allure. And in a certain kind of way, that's straightforward. There's a whole set of ways in which America is uniquely messed up around questions of race and identity. And Europe is obviously an easy escape from that. But on the other hand, you know, I think I tend to be, and a lot of people tend to be, quite skeptical of certainly France's notion of how to make a multi-ethnic society work and their particular version of laicity. So there's something sort of paradoxical to me about that, that sort of in America, we have a certain amount of disdain about the French model. And I think I, at various points, had some disdain as well, to be honest. And yet it's sort of this odd place of refuge. And so especially as we now have Donald Trump as our president, I'm trying to figure out whether perhaps we've maligned the French system a little bit. So how do you see the difference between both the reality of race relations in the States and France and then how it is that at least sort of American and French elites think about it? There's a couple of things in that question. The paradox of freedom that black Americans have found in Europe, but primarily the tradition has been in France and in Paris, exists because here 
primarily you're interacted with as though you're American and not as though you're black. And so I don't want to ever sound naive and, and make it seem as though the French don't see skin color or that Africans or people of African descent from the Caribbean get treated exactly the mm. same way. But the thing is that many black Americans over the course of history that they've been coming to Europe were not feeling like Americans back home. And it was mm. only, James Baldwin said, it was only once he came to France that he realized that he was an American. And I think it's a privilege to be an American. That can be quite a... It can be empowering in a weird way. Very much so. You know, huh. you were treated as a black second-class citizen in America, but when you travel suddenly, that blue passport makes you feel probably what you begin to suspect white people always felt like back home. And so then you become aware, if you're reasonably awake, you can become aware to the fact that there are other people that occupy the position here that uh, you remember occupying back home. I don't mean to claim that kind of history of pain back home for myself. I didn't really have a kind of an American experience that I was escaping from. But what I did want was a kind of world-expanding experience of being somewhere else. That was always very much inside of me. And when I got to Paris, one of my first assignments here for a magazine was for Smithsonian. I was trying to find out if there's still a kind of black community in Paris. And I started interviewing some writers and some people here. And it seemed as though there are plenty of black Americans living here and working and creating, but the idea that Paris is the place that you go if you need to leave the States doesn't seem to be as strong anymore as it was. And why is that? The reason why James Baldwin came here is because he said, if I stayed in New York, I think I was going to kill somebody or I was going to be killed. Mm -hmm. I don't think I met anybody who had that type of need to flee. But I do think that my experience here is one that's been shared by others I've talked to, which is that Oftentimes here I can kind of forget, if I don't read the news or think mm. about it in an abstract way, I can kind of forget about race in a way that's very freeing. Mm. You know? I feel like living here, I have somehow slipped out of the black-white binary that even in positions of privilege in America is always very much on your mind. I don't know if that's completely clear. No, I mean, that, that does make sense. I mean, I think it does get to the heart of the question of what an ideal society would look like mm -hmm. in this, right? I, I mean, there's a lot of sort of scorn at the moment for the idea of a colorblind society. Mm -hmm. And in a way, I, I get that, right? Because a lot of the time, talk of a colorblind society is just an attempt to pretend that color doesn't play a role. Yeah. When, when clearly it does, right? When clearly people are discriminated against mm -hmm. on the basis of their skin color in, in deep ways all of the time. And one of my slight skepticism towards the French model, which we should sort of talk a little bit more about at some point, or explain more what exactly it is, is that one element of it is to say, no, 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 the state doesn't recognize different skin colors. And so actually we kind of have data being gathered by the state that actually records people's ethnicities. And the problem with that is that it might actually make you blind to real realities of discrimination. Absolutely. But, but when we think about sort of an ideal of a society, to me, the idea of a society where skin color matters less rather than more still seems obviously right. And I wonder if there's something about French ideology, which has lots of disadvantages, but which in other ways may also make it easier, at least for some people who are in sort of relatively privileged positions, you know, blue passport from the United States or whatever it is, to actually access small versions of that ideal. Absolutely. Trevor Noah on The Daily Show made fun of the kind of French Republican model and that the idea that these soccer players were just French and nothing else. Mm. But the idea that they so are So what French, essentially happened there for people who didn't follow the controversy is that Trevor Noah you know, in a relatively innocent way, sort of celebrated the victory of the African team right. in the World Cup, right? And the French ambassador to the United States wrote, you know, a reasonably thoughtful response saying, well, actually, no, that's what the far right says in our country, that the African are not really French, but French, the French citizens are French. And Trevor Noah sort of thought that was ridiculous. He thought it was ridiculous, and many, many of his viewers and many people watching the debate thought it was ridiculous. But if you think, as you mentioned before, if you think, what would I like? my society to be like? How should a society be ideally? It would be, as the French ambassador was outlining, you would actually accept that these people are French because you can integrate into a society. And the fact that the anti-racist discourse so closely can hew to the line that real racists believe in it should be more distressing to people than it is. Last summer I wrote about the kind of French far-right thinkers that the alt-right in America take and draw inspiration from, the migration of ideas and the idea of white nationalism and ethno-pluralism and stuff like this. And the thing that's so scary about this is that both white nationalists and anti-racists believe that race is a kind of an essence and an essential thing and that no matter how long you've been here from Senegal or Cote d'Ivoire, no matter how long your family has been in Paris, you're always not 
exactly the same as a French person. So just for me to understand that claim, I mean, I think what an anti-racist might say in response is, no, you know, the people on the right think that this is a deep essential difference, mm -hmm. which makes some people better than others and all of those things, right? Which comes with a whole narrative of why it is superior to be white and so on. Whereas what we're saying is that, you know, an actual fact people are always going to be treated based on their skin color. And that's an empirical claim about existing injustice in a society rather than a sort of biological mm -hmm. or, or metaphysical claim about the status of different races in the world. Why are you saying there's actually deeper similarity than that kind of response would allow for? Well, the savvier kind of far-right thinkers like Alain de Benoit, they would say that actually I don't claim that there's any superiority in whiteness. I just think mm -hmm. that we have to protect diversity, which means that white people should be here with each other and Arabs should be here with each other, but, but no one's better hmm. or worse. But I think that the deeper similarity is that, take a writer like Tana Hasi Coates, he looks at whiteness as though it's a category that exists and is the important category. And from an anti-racist point of view, and you can say that the empirical evidence is that it's been functioning this way, hmm. but it hasn't always functioned this way. And I think that the real challenge for imaginative anti-racist thinking is to try to conceive of a world in which it, again, wouldn't have to matter that way, regardless of what the recent empirical, recent in terms of four or five centuries empirical evidence tells us. And that, I think, is very hard for most people to do, to conceive of another way of being, another way of belonging to each other, interacting with each other, that doesn't have to necessarily take so-called racial differences as its baseline starting point. The French Republican mm -hmm. system actually is a way of conceiving it that way. In practice, French people don't behave exactly as their Republican ideals, but that doesn't, I don't think, discredit the Republican ideals so much as it shows the gap between where we ought to be and where we actually are. So this is an important point in general, I think, that there's a tendency at the moment to jump from criticism of an abstract universal ideal or from criticism of it being insufficiently applied to a rejection of a principle itself. So certainly when you look at the United States, all kinds of universal principles which are enshrined in the Constitution have obviously never in American history been adequately heeded but probably being better heated now, or at least a couple of years ago, than we were 30 or 50 or 100 years ago, but very far from satisfactorily or sufficiently. And I think there's this sort of long-standing debate among leftists and liberals, and also within the black community, about what the consequence of that is. Somebody like Martin Luther King would have said the consequence of that is that we have to ask for full inclusion under those principles and appeal to the conscience right. of our fellow citizens to say, what justifies you in not living up to this? Look at how you're being hypocritical. The remedy is not to be hypocritical. But then there's a more radical tradition that says, no, we actually need to reject those principles altogether. So would you sort of place yourself as maybe an overly simplistic thumbnail, but would you place yourself sort of squarely on the side of... Oh, yeah. I would say that we still haven't found a better way of uh, making the case than Martin Luther King showed. In many cases, the ideals are fine. The retreat into, in essence, I'm an Arab, I'm a Muslim, I'm a black person, we've been abused and oppressed by whites, I'm digging deeper into my essence... Glenn Lowry, a brilliant thinker, made the point, you can do that, you might even be justified in doing that, but that's a sword that anybody can pick up and use. And once you retreat further into your identity, into your essence, of course you have to have the reaction on the other side. So I think that what has to happen is still what King showed us is that somebody has to move first. And it might be the group that's been primarily victimized that has to move first. But if the ideal is worth getting to, then somebody has to make the first move. My current work is about a kind of non-universal situation that I'm in, but one that I think is kind of universally relatable and as we go forward is going to be more and more common, which is that I'm a descendant of slaves, my father's black, my mother's white. I'm just old enough to have grown up without really having ever had what in America is called the law of hypodescent or the one-drop rule, mm -hmm. the idea that you have any black blood in you that makes you black. So I grew up kind of with an uncomplicated understanding of myself as black, eventually married a French woman, moved to France, and had two children who are very white looking, blonde hair, blue eyes, very pale skin. And over the course of becoming a person who's thought of himself as black and been called, defined as black in my society, and having children who are thought of as white, I've come to think quite a lot about the categories and how porous the borders are mm. so that we defend and why we defend these borders and what it might be like for myself to not say that I'm mixed, my kids are mixed, but to say, I no longer buy into this mm. way of talking about people anymore. And I am aware that you think it's naive and you might 
think it's an evasion or it might be something that could be thought of as a privileged kind of thing to do that not everybody can do. But I am stepping out of the black-white binary and mm. I'm not defining myself in those terms. And I hope that my children won't anymore either. And does that mean not defining yourself by any ethnic category at all? Does that mean defining yourself just by your nationality, just by, well, I grew up in the States, now I live in Paris, how would you describe yourself? And I know that's sort of an idiotic question because I'm asked versions of that question all the time and I never have an answer, <laughs> but I'm going to ask it to you anyway. Sure. I'm in the beginning stages of this, but I'm black culturally. There's a cultural tradition that makes sense to me. I think the history of black life in America has shown that it is very loosely tied to genetic heritage, mm. sometimes not at all. But there is a type of tradition that I relate to that seems like something like an ethnicity to me. And I'm American, and American implies all types of things. And when I'm in France, I know that I'm an American. Further than that, I'm not exactly sure that there's anything very beneficial by thinking of myself in racial terms, and I know that there's a lot that's harmful about it. I know that my father's been harmed his whole life by this category called black. And do you mean by that? And I don't mean that by... no pride in it, but I mean that he's been harmed politically and socially. But it has been harmed because that's how other people saw him and there was no escaping from that? Or do you mean that he's been harmed by how he conceived of himself as black? And no, uh, by others, right, by right. institutions. You know, I'm not a fool. I know that there's the way that you think of yourself and there's always how institutions and other people mm. think of you and there's a constant negotiation between the two. But, you know, I spent a good part of this year profiling a very brilliant artist named Adrian Piper, who's American, but she lives in Berlin. She's black by definition in American society, but she can pass for what people think of as white. Mm -hmm. And her physical appearance is very ambiguous. Recently, she made a public gesture of publicly retiring from being black. Mm -hmm. And it kind of got some news in the art world and people thought she was playing around. But over the course of many hours of talking with her, it became apparent to me that she's not kidding. She's serious. She retired from being black. She thought that a large part of being able to do that was moving to Europe. But even a few months ago, when I asked her, isn't there some type of a betrayal if you do that? When you come from an oppressed group, don't you have some type of debt to the ancestors who went through some suffering that you yourself haven't had to go through? And I said, I worry that with my daughter, will she not have this kind of ancestral guilt or hmm. compass that leads her back to a pain? And Piper just looked at me and she said, if she doesn't have to have that, why would you want her to have that? Now, hmm. she can have ideas of... A just society, she can have ideas of cultural memories, she can have pride, she can have a type of consciousness, but why would you force a, an attachment to a wound? And I, the more I tried to answer her, the more I couldn't necessarily come up with something that I found satisfactory in response. What I want her to do is to, I want her to be aware of what my father's people went through and what my mother's people, speaking loosely, put my father's people through. Hmm. But if the goal is transcending this, then we have to start raising generations of people that are not attached to the wound. I think that mm. one of the most damaging things to do is actually to not be able to heal from a wound, psychologically, socially, tribally. I wonder what you think about that, because you're from another kind of wound than I am. Yeah, so I think about this, you know, in part as somebody who grew up Jewish in Germany. And certainly I think living in a society in which your ancestors were murdered, especially for older members of that community who really had to deal every day at work and shops in the children's schools with people who may actually personally have been involved in exterminating their families. I think it leads to an incredible amount of complexes and neuroses, which are deeply unhealthy. And I think one of the reasons why I wanted to leave Germany is in part because I wound up being quite hurt by various things that I write about my first book, which was a memoir, and which today might be labeled microaggressions, which is funny because I'm a little skeptical of the discourse of microaggressions, but I certainly know how potent they can feel and how much they can shape your identity. But certainly for myself, part of the reason why I want to leave Germany is that I didn't want to live in a society where that wound would always be reopened and where I would always sort of be tending to it. And now that the center of my life is in the United States. I can go back to Germany and deal with all of those things in a much better way. So when I was promoting my last book in Germany, you know, one radio host said, well, you're Jewish. What do you think of Donald Trump's decision to move the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, right? 
And, you know, 15 or 20 years ago when I was growing up there, I would have been quite hurt by that remark. I would probably have reacted sort of a little aggressively. You know, and as it was, I think I reacted to it in a good and reasonable way, which is, well, you know, I don't see why you're asking me that question, you know, just because I'm Jewish. But, you know, let me tell you something about Trump's foreign policy and how it's dangerous, more broadly. But of course, for me, part of being able to escape that wound was to move abroad. And so, you know, for you, part of it is partially living in Paris or having the feeling that, you know, your daughter is not going to be identifiable externally as, as being black. You know, the other question is... Though I don't want her to think of herself as white either. I, mm-hmm. I don't think that black people have to retire from race. I, th- I think it only works if plenty of white people decide to step out of whiteness as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a conversation I want to start, but not just towards the black community. I actually think that the whole game is upheld by kind of aspirational whiteness, actually. A lot of mm-hmm. Latinos certainly come into this. Over the course of American history, there was Italians, Greeks, Jews, Irish who kind of became white. Sometimes you have this pressure even for Asians and certainly mixed race, blacks and others aspiring into whiteness can be very expansive around the borders and can accommodate a lot of contradiction. That's a long way of saying, I don't want my daughter to not just not look black and escape the wound. I also want her to never aspire or transition into whiteness either. That's a fascinating point. I'm gonna have two thoughts in this, right? So the first is just about that thesis on the inevitable demographic majority which I think is mistaken exactly for the reasons you point out. All of those famous census predictions that there's going to be a majority-minority population by 2044, for example, rely on the idea that everybody who has one drop of Latino blood will no longer is, be is, go, is going to be Latino, <laughs> right. right? But actually, that's not the case. We already know that right now, if you have one Latino grandparent, your likelihood of considering yourself Latino is less than 20%. Give someone an option, a chance, a way into whiteness, that usually the census will not reflect (laughs) much change. Exactly. So there's a whole question about what exactly that sort of set of demographic coalitions is going to look like and where Asian Americans are going to stand on that and, and all of those kinds of questions. But the point of a current discourse in which I really think about the point you just made is, you know, I don't know what identity politics means exactly. Um, I think it has all kinds of different meanings, and on some versions of it, I'm in favor of it, on some versions of it, I'm very much against it. But there's this phrase of, well, obviously there can't be any problem with identity politics because all politics is identity politics, because look at whites and, and their identity politics. And that, to me, misunderstands something quite fundamental, which is that we want to live in a society where tribalism is as low as possible, and where we can actually deliberate together on some kind of public good or common good, which is how founding fathers thought of the point of a representative republic. Now, that's incredibly hard to get to. But I think if we completely give up on that idea... You're not going to get there. Yeah, I, we, I, I, we give up something important. Yeah. Um, and it also seems to me sort of historically naive, because basically what it's saying is, look, politics is just a struggle for power between different ethnic and identity groups. Let's embrace it. But if American history has taught you anything... It should be that when politics becomes that, and God knows it often has become that in our history, the whites have tended to win. Right. Because they do hold a lot of the power and a lot of the wealth in society and so on. And so even just on purely prudential Pragmatic grounds, terms, it yeah. seems to me like, like a strange argument to embrace. When, when have minorities made the best progress? It's been the civil rights movement when Martin Luther King appealed to a common way of belonging, a common purpose, a common project, and whites kind of backed away from picking up the identity sword. I haven't seen a better path forward than that. You could say that a movement like Black Lives Matter has probably been successful, and it has been successful in terms that are different than the civil rights movement, but I think there's a limit to what you can achieve with something like that. And I think, personally, part of the problem with a name like Black Lives Matter is the idea that there are black lives and white lives. And this, I think, has to be transcended. And I know that that's a very difficult point to make because the, the easy response is to say, and, and maybe and the heartfelt response is to say, call it whatever you like, but these are the people who are getting shot by cops. These are the people who the president of the United States insults when they protest, when they take a knee against this. But so long as there are black lives and white lives, I think that we're never going to get the kind of lasting mutual prosperity or complete uh, integration of people of all backgrounds into American opportunity that, that I think we can have if enough people could decide to give up on these kind of very superficial ways of sorting ourselves and thinking of ourselves and organizing ourselves. So if the goal is 
a shared society in which people make the fact of their origin, the fact of their skin color less rather than more important. And this is something, as you were pointing out, which is true not just for minorities. It's not just that it's sort of like, hey, you people who are minorities better shut up about this, but we the majority keep going on, right? I mean, right. it's where everybody places less emphasis on this, right. in which the goal of a pluribus unum, at least in the sense of the goal of people coming from different kinds of backgrounds, but thinking of themselves as one shared society, even if obviously they're going to be different in all kinds of ways, is realized. How do we get there? One version of that is a French response, right? And, and as I understand it, it is saying that we, ne- that we go out of a way not to emphasize those things. We certainly go out of a way as a state not to treat people differently on that basis. And to some extent, we go out of our way to raise a kind of noble myth that these things have never mattered. That the definition of being French for 200 years since the revolution has just been by citizenship, even if we know that in all kinds of ways it was actually more, more complicated. What do you think the advantages and disadvantages of that kind of approach are? I mean, you know, some of the disadvantages seem to me quite obvious. A, that sometimes you might be involved in historical myth-making, and B, that sometimes the state needs to be aware of difference in order to combat the way in which a society that perceives that difference does treat people differently in an unjust right. manner. But I wonder whether it also has advantages that are a little easy to poo-poo and, and, and what we need to take more seriously. I think the French state exists differently depending on who is enacting the ideals. My wife and many of her friends, they genuinely believe in the Republican ideal that Kylian Mbappe is French, period. There's no difference between him and a guy with a, with a duh in his last name who's an aristocrat. In that, if, if you do believe that and you live your life that way, then the French system works very well right now. Hmm. The problem is that I think that most people, I suspect, it works on two levels in their mind where they say that, but in actuality, when you go to their dinner table, there's never anyone like Kylian Mbappe at the dinner table. Most of the dinners or parties I've ever been to in France are extremely racially and religiously segregated in a way that they're not in America, actually, where mm. in many ways we are a more rhetorically racist society, if that makes sense. Huh. Pe- people say things, but even in southern states, I've seen more racial mixing than I have in, in Paris, socially. And so I think that matters too. Practices matter too, not just ideas, but like when you're actually living the way that the French model works. And I think that that's where we need to get to in America. But I think that Germany is a much better example of facing up to the crimes of the past. America would be somewhere in between Germany and France. But France really hasn't acknowledged a lot of what's behind the kind of segregation and resentment and anger. Mm -hmm. And I think that so long as you don't have a kind of national reckoning, then the society can't operate on the level of the Republican ideal. I'm sorry, I'm speaking kind of abstractly. And uh, No, 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 this, this is fascinating. To some degree, it's, it's hard to just mesh up models, right? Because they, they often are complex systems which are mutually reinforcing and there's different elements that, that make each other work and you can't sort of take the best bit from one model and plug it into the other. But having lived in France for a while and seeing some of the things that you like here, is there anything from it that you would take in the United States? Or more broadly, you know, what parts of American... Uh, politics and American discourse would you change in order to advance a society in which, which is actually less racist, and mm-hmm. which actually perhaps gives less importance to, to those differences between people. Now, one of his part is, I, I assume, to get rid of Donald Trump and so on, but, but I suppose I'm more interested in how sort of left liberals yeah. should change how they think about sure. this matters. One thing that I think I would love to be imported from France to America in the way that people interact and speak and debate. I almost never hear in France someone saying, speaking as a. And that is basically the basis for most people's arguments over in America. It's kind of identity epistemology, where speaking as a black man, I'm going to tell you about what it's like in America racially, and essentially the debate's over because you're not black, so you're not going to be able to respond to me because you don't have access to what I know. The French have a way of conceiving of human life when it's at its best, which is that it's accessible. We all can know. Hmm. If we think seriously enough and if we talk long enough, then you can understand my position in society as well as I can. That would be a healthy, very small step to make in the American Hmm. political discourse, I think. Speaking as it puts everybody on on their defenses. I mean, I have a family in which my mother's family members are 
less educated than the black members of my family and voted for Donald Trump, very religious, evangelical Christians who would think of themselves as uh, not at all racist. But as soon as the discourse turns to speaking as a, I notice them closed down and they're inaccessible. And I just have experience with them knowing that they could be reached, I think, by different rhetorical hmm. modes. The skeptical claim here is, right, that, for example, a lot of social science has shown that dominant groups are really resentful right. when the dominance is challenged. Mm -hmm. And so the skeptic might say, well, look, you know, they might be reached as long as somebody is sufficiently reassuring that they care to keep the dominance. Mm -hmm. But once you actually challenge the dominance, they're always going to react really, really badly. Now, I suppose the counter-argument is something like, no, when your dominance is challenged, it's all the more important that you get some kind of reassurance that further society will be equal and, and you're not only going to be dominant, it is going to be a society in which you have your place that you can be sort of content with. From a sort of micro perspective, sort of from your conversations with family and so on, which of those interpretations do you think is more realistic, or more optimistic? Or more if you're talking about, yeah, if you're talking about fair or satisfying from a retaliatory perspective, it's not very satisfying to think that the people who have always been dominant also get to have their hands held and be reassured into a kind of truce. But if you're thinking pragmatically about what type of society you want to live in, and you think about the kind of damage that even diminishing majorities can still wield, and that we've seen, you know, back against the wall, thrashing, electing a president like Donald Trump. I, I mean, I think that the second path that you mentioned is obviously the pragmatically most appealing one. But do you think that it can in fact succeed? But if yeah, you... I do. I don't think that a full healing is ever going to be possible, that we will all agree that everybody will come to see things the same way. In France, in America, I think that you're only ever partially going to realize the, the promise of the political project, the social cultural project. But I think that many more people can agree and get there. And that a very ideal society mm. can exist while there's other pockets of less ideal realities. It's an interesting question when you say, you know, the people who already have been dominant, who've already had huge privileges, and in certain cases perhaps perpetrated big injustices, now also get to have the hands held. Actually, I think in political science, a broader version of that is the problem of transitional justice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, growing up Jewish in Germany, I always abhorred the first post-war years, which obviously I knew from history books and from family stories and so on, in which, you know, for example, the guy who wrote the official commentary on the Nuremberg race laws, you know, one of the most racist and anti-Semitic pieces of legislation in the history of the world, ended up being essentially Konrad Adenauer as the first big post-war chancellor's chief of staff. Very, very important role. And many institutions were filled to half to two-thirds with former senior Nazis. And I always thought of that as an obvious moral aberration and something about which I was angry at, at a deep level. But sort of the more distance I have from it, the more I wonder whether there was a price, to some extent, that was necessary and worth paying in order to reconcile conservative elites in Germany to liberal democracy. So I think that there may be two irreconcilable values here. The value of justice and of seeing people get their just desserts, which certainly in the case of the author of an official commentary to the Nuremberg race laws would have been to go to prison rather than to be the chief of staff of the most important man in the country. But there's also the value of making the society work in a way that stops further injustice from being inflicted on people. And trying to understand to what extent that trade-off exists at various historical moments and how to maneuver it is an incredibly difficult thing. It's absolutely difficult, but if you look at what happens in societies where there hasn't been sufficient transitional justice, look at Iraq or something like that mm. and compare that to a much more successful model like South Africa. I mean, I think that the white reaction that in many ways fueled the rise of Donald Trump is just a foretaste of what can happen in America, what a disaster can come to pass in America, especially as whites become more and more aware that the demographic change, even if it's not as absolute as optimists predict, is going to meaningfully impact them and their place in society within a generation. I think that there's, there's quite a lot more damage that can be inflicted. And so, personally, I'm more interested in creating the society that we all want to live in than in keeping 
a group of people perpetually on the hook, I guess, even if there's some merit in that view, or even if that would be uh, in some ways more viscerally satisfying. So if we're trying to do that, right, and then we say, okay, so look, we, we just swallow the moral bullet, bite the moral bullet, and say, okay, there's going to be people who are not held to account in various ways, and we're going to hold people's hands even when that seems perverse in a certain kind of way, because we're more interested in what is to come. I think that's a coherent choice. It makes sense to me in a certain kind of way. There's still a question, though, about how are you sure that you are fighting for those ideals of a more equal society, as opposed to just being complicit in the continuation of those forms of injustice. So where do you draw the line? How do you contest existing and persisting privileges and inequalities in a way that helps us get towards that more equal society? And where do you say, no, this is starting to just be holding people to account or pointing out a privileged position in a way that actually is going to be counterproductive to that society? How do you personally contribute to the creation of a more equal and just society? On a personal level, I, I suppose racism starts as an interaction between individuals. On a personal level, I attempt to live my life on the basis that I don't uh, make decisions on skin color or... Religion, but that's a, I mean, that's a very difficult question to answer. So perhaps I didn't express myself quite clearly, even if we're not thinking about the personal level, mm-hmm. it's not about sort of what I or listeners can do sort of personally, but, but sort of rhetorically, mm-hmm. right? I mean, how do you talk about this issue in a way that clearly calls out injustice where it exists mm-hmm. and thereby rallies the political forces we need in order to start overcoming it, but that also doesn't activate the fears of a majority in such a way that you have a huge political backlash and you end up with Donald Trump on steroids. Mm-hmm. Mark Lilla in The Once and Future Liberal argues that the only way that he can answer that question is we have to really commit ourselves to an understanding of citizenship. And so he says Black Lives Matter is rightfully drawing attention to the extrajudicial killing of black motorists, for example. But by putting it in terms of black motorists instead of putting it in terms of these are American citizens who are having their civil rights violated and all of us should see that as a violation of our safety. He says that by framing it in the tribal way that you don't reach huge amounts of Americans. And I read that and, you know, I'm somewhat conflicted about that because it gets to the heart of your question because it is not so simple as to say that Americans are simply being shot. Hmm. There is an important distinction about the type of Americans that are being shot. Right, some Americans right. have one particular type of Americans, not for coincidence, has a much higher likelihood of right. being shot. But I do think that the distinction that's being made by making it a kind of loosely genetic hmm. uh, category of who's being shot doesn't quite get at the reality either. The reality is more complex than that because I'm not aware of any black Americans such as myself Uh, being shot in these situations, actually. It tends to be where race overlaps with a kind of class. When race and class and signifiers of poverty kind of intermingle Hmm. is when you have these situations in a way that I think that it could be more helpful if we tried to parse the level of complexity going on in here. But I don't know that widening out the lens and just saying citizens can solve the problem. the, The question that you ask gets to the heart of exactly what I think a lot of us are trying to think through, which is how do you pay sufficient attention to the kinds of people who are going through certain circumstances and build these bridges where we all care about each other and find more meaningful ways to belong to each other and mm. expand the possibility of belonging beyond just um, kind of superficial ethnic and religious and racial qualifiers. You've read Lilla's book, I'm sure. Did you find the citizenship argument sufficient? No, I yeah. don't think I quite did. Um, I mean, I'm trying to think through the case of Black Lives Matter, and I suppose my hunch is that you need to do sort of two different things at the same time, or perhaps even three different things, right? I mean, in a way, I think public discourse, when you're trying to persuade people of a cause, is a little bit like what they say about the law, right? You, you throw a lot of shit against the wall and see what sticks. You know, I think there can be a purism in those kinds of moral arguments where you're saying, we should only be employing the most morally urgent argument. But that seems to me not to be quite right, because we should be doing whatever it takes to reform police departments and to ensure that more people don't get shot. And so I'm happy to use any true argument in order to accomplish that goal. 
in whatever mix it takes. And so I think one argument that we should make and, and must make, because it's obviously true, is that you know black people have a higher likelihood of getting shot and that that is an especially intense form of injustice in light of American history, but also beyond that. And that we can't just talk about, oh, here's American citizens being shot. It is a particular kind of American citizen being shot on the basis of being that kind of citizen or because of it, not that it's intentional necessarily. It's not those cops who shoot people. It's not the racism in the sense that we think, I, I want to go out and kill black people. That's not what's going on, right? In most cases, in any case. But certainly there is a causal relation between those two things. And that makes it especially bad in the same way in which we think that ordinary hate crimes are worse than uh, non-hate crimes, right? I mean, it's always this tragedy when somebody gets stabbed to death. But if it's, you know, just a random altercation inside a bar that's taken out on the street and somebody dies, that has less systemic effects on people's ability to feel safe in our society and to feel like equal citizens in our society than if, you know, somebody gets stabbed to death in that kind of way because they're transgender and there's hatred there, right? So, so that is a very deep normative thing, which we can actually explain, I think, to large segments of American society in a way that resonates. And it's got to be a part of what we're talking about. But I suppose that there's also a second and third element. The second element is, and by the way, you should care about that because they're your fellow citizens and because this violates the very basic principles of the kind of society you want to stand for, which I suppose would be the sort of little argument. I don't see anything wrong with that argument if it's made on top of the other mm -hmm. argument. And then third, I would even do a more naked appeal to self-interest, which perhaps sounds even more shocking, even less moral, but which I think is also important, which is that as I remember the statistics, the rate of black Americans who are killed by police is hugely disproportional. But more but white of course, people right. actually get killed. Yeah. Well, but because, you know, African Americans are only something like 13 or 14 percent of the population, it winds up being less than 50 percent. Mm -hmm. And so then I do wonder what we should also be saying, hey, and you know what? Americans not get only, killed by the police. Right, not only is it true that African Americans are being killed at vastly disproportionate rates, and that's an unacceptable injustice given our country's history and so on. Not only does that, is that an affront to the most basic constitutional ideals in which you believe that people have equal justice before the law and so on and so forth, but also, you know what, even if you are a middle-class white parent, if your kid encounters the police at the wrong moment at the wrong time, they might actually get killed as well. So you know what, you also have some interest mm -hmm. in wanting to deal with that. And to me, it seems like, and I'm speaking of a cuff, we should be more willing to use all of those arguments at the same time and see them as layering on top of each other rather than saying one of those three arguments is normatively more important, which it may be, and, and therefore we shouldn't be using the other two. Mm -hmm. I like what you say about the layering because I often think that the terms of the discourse are such that it becomes a zero-sum thing that in order to recognize the dignity of peoples that have, have been debased in the past, we have to lose the second and third layers of the discourse, which mm. might actually go a long way towards reaching some people that could be reached. Mm. And ultimately, uh, I guess it comes down to whether you want to reach these people or not. And I think that a lot of Americans right now no longer deeply desire to reach each other. And, and, yeah. and that might be the heart of... And, and, and that's the sort of weird political progression of Black Lives Matter. No, all lives matter you're a racist, mm -hmm. where I think, you know, I understand the impatience with the somewhat trolling All Lives Matter response, but I think it might go Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter. Yes, of course All Lives Matter, but the point is that Black lives, in fact, aren't respected in the same way. Right. Right. Which is a way of saying sort of yes and, mm -hmm. rather than but, in, in, right. in the terms of that horrible exercise right, that right. they make you do when you, you know, first enter a group or something. <laughs> All Lives Matter is similar to the idea of the French Republic. It, it all depends on whether you actually mean that. If it's just a trolling to, to silence people specifically talking about their type of pain, then of course it's, it's problematic. But if we're actually trying to get to the society where all lives do matter, then that actually is, that's a step in the, in the process, mm -hmm. is saying Black Lives Matter, we recognize that. Trans lives matter, all these lives matter, all these lives matter, can we make a society together? Speaking about these things, sometimes you become self-conscious because you almost feel as though, or I do feel as though the correct answers or the answers I truly believe in are so 
screamingly obvious and simple as to sound naive <laughs> and stupid, you know? Hmm. Uh, one of my favorite writers is Albert Murray. And his book, The Omni-Americans, had a profound impact on, on, on starting me along this process of wanting to leave this kind of, I think, sick American skin discourse. Murray has a line in, his, in this book where he says, but any fool can see that, that black people are not black and the white people aren't white. <laughs> my daughter, she's almost five. She knows she has a brown grandfather and she has a pink grandfather because when he drinks, his face gets flushed. But she doesn't know that she thinks she has white socks and a black t-shirt. But this kind of seeing people, in, you know, fitting people into really like stark color categories that don't even correspond correctly to human flesh tones. Right. If you think about it, it sounds stupid to point that out. No one points that out. Hmm. But our whole our whole way of talking about things is so disingenuous, you know, and it starts from these kind of... And, you know, I mean, one thing that does strike me about America as an immigrant to a country who is a part of a citizen now is that Americans sort of have a weird exceptionalism about the race discourse, which is both that their racial history is sort of uniquely screwed up. Now, you know, it's very, very, very screwed up. I know it's uniquely screwed up, but certainly it's up there towards the top. But paradoxically, but nevertheless, the way that Americans think about race, which obviously comes out of that history, even if in part it's a response to that history or a counter-reaction, but obviously shaped by that history, must be superior to the ways that every other human society conceptualizes categories of ethnicity and race and so on. And, and that's weird to me. I mean, actually, in France at the moment, there's a big debate about the fact that at the very beginning of a French constitution, there's a phrase which has something along the lines of the state shall never make uh, discriminations on the basis of race. And the French, in fact, are debating changing that article because they find the word race so offensive. Right. And actually, there's good reasons to find the word race offensive. I mean, it sounds like different breeds of dogs or something like that. If it like doesn't that. exist. But of course, in the States, it's a completely normal term. Right. In a way, it's not true in continental Europe. And actually, that's probably screwed up. I mean, actually, thinking about races in those kinds of ways is unscientific and owes a lot more than we should be comfortable admitting right. to precisely the history of slavery and so on. But oddly, Americans at least sort of our kinds of Americans, I mean, sort of liberal lefty and so on Americans, tend to simultaneously believe that the history is uniquely screwed up and that the vocabulary and conceptual apparatus that come out of that history is somehow uniquely legitimate. Can still be used. And I know. And this French movement to take race out of the Constitution, that on one level, I have a kind of response that's typically American. It's like, wait, what? But on a deeper level, if I think for five minutes about what I profess to believe in and what I want... It's correct, because how can you reify an idea that we all recognize as, most of us recognize as based on a fiction in the first place? This is what Barbara and Karen Fields get into in racecraft. Racecraft is like witchcraft. There's no such thing as witches, but in a society that believes in witchcraft, witchcraft does exist. There are witches. Mm. You know, in a society that has race as a term that has legal validity or technical validity, how do you do away with the concept? And how do you, if you right. still have the concept of race, how do you ever get rid of, how do you transcend racism? I don't think you can. Well, that to me is a fundamental question that comes out of this conversation. I'm not sure that we're going to solve it, but I'll pose it to you in a parting shot and then perhaps you have to take it up another time, which is, it's clear to me that I would prefer to live in a society where people, in fact, did not perceive and act on race and did not reify that concept. Now, it's also clear to me that we're very, very, very far from living in that society. Sure. And so I guess the question is, how do you move towards that society? And is the only realistic way of doing that to emphasize race and its injustices all of the time? Or is part of a response to try and emphasize it as little as possible? And perhaps those alternatives are too stark. Both of them sound wrong as I'm saying them, but, <laughs> but it is a fundamental dilemma, right? How do you overcome racial thinking that's so deep in a society without either ignoring its presence or perpetuating its existence? I think it honestly only comes through a more educated citizenry. I mean, I'm astonished by the lack of historical understanding that many Americans, I would say many white Americans, bring to the subject of race. The, the common notion still that many white Americans have that they are unraced, 
that race is a deviation from whiteness in some way. So mm -hmm. Asians, Latinos, and blacks of varying degrees are raced, but whites are neutral. That's deeply problematic. Race doesn't exist. I think the French uh, idea to eventually strike it from official documents is correct. But there still does have to be an understanding and appreciation of what has passed before, because without that, you can't get beyond it. Hmm. Absolutely. So the solution can't be to talk about it as little as possible. But the solution also cannot be to obsess over it or fetishize it. I think you have to have a cool-headed appreciation of what's come before and then, a, and then a kind of daring and bold imagination to the extent possible in your own personal life and sphere of influence of what might be. And so I think that different societies exist actually simultaneously. I think that some people can find ways to transcend race even now and will and more will. And the question is, how can we make as many people as possible share in that? What I have done in my own personal life, people often ask me this, uh, often because they, it seems they're genuinely troubled. Could Michael Brown even do the little bit that you've done to get outside of the black-white binary? Mm -hmm. Could a young man like that, who died the way he did, could he even take advantage of kind of his Americanness mm -hmm. and find his Americanness overseas? Maybe not, but that alone, I think, is not the reason why plenty more people who could... I want to make sure I say that in a way that... I don't want to sound dismissive. Right. Michael Brown, not everybody can do the same things at the same time. I don't think that necessarily invalidates the things that some people can do and that many more people might think about doing. Hmm. And I think that many people can try to find ways to loosen the straitjacket of race and tribalism identity, even as others are kind of tightening it and others are not even aware of what's holding them. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And the, the main thing I take away from it, that the goal has to be over time to loosen the straitjacket. And I think it's very hard to think about how to do that. But that as a guiding ideal, as a famous New York Times op-ed said recently, as a lodestar of what we're trying to do, right. I think is really important. Because it's, it's a prisoner's dilemma. The idea that you think that I can't loosen mine because other people still have theirs on and they're not taking theirs off makes us all choose the wrong option every time. It comes back to somebody's got to do it first. And so my project now is to do it within myself, within my family, hopefully within whoever I can reach with my writing. But I think that the way forward has to be to leave some of this damaging thinking from the past behind us. Thomas, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you do have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, go back in time for a couple of weeks. Attend that hearing for Brett Kavanaugh and unfurl a big banner saying, The Good Fight. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.